0: Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. We are back in our Romans series, and I am really excited about it. And my plan is, is I, you know, we did a, a big chunk of Romans, we're about to do a, the finish off Romans, And one thing that's a little tricky is that I wanted to time it where I finished the first half of Romans on Romans 8 at Easter with the big, triumphant, climactic, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, neither angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth. Just this big, awesome, powerful, uh, triumphant conclusion. The only tricky part is, is that that meant that I had to start the second half at Romans 9. And Romans 9, for me, is a bear. A big, ugly, angry bear. Because there are lots of things in it that to me are things that personally I just struggle with. I struggle to read. I struggle to figure out where exactly Paul's going. And, and one analogy I'm going to use throughout this sermon. Paul does this thing, in my opinion, where if if I'm not careful, I see him make a point, and in half of me is like, that just made it a little bit worse not better you know he's trying to defend himself and I kind of hear it and go that doesn't help necessarily and the, the analogy that I've thought of the illustration is I want you to picture by the way husbands that are now currently husbands or someday will be husbands this is a trap you ready <laughs> Catherine at different points in our marriage will ask me point-blank do you like my hair better long or short? (laughs) It's a trap, gentlemen, okay? Because you know what it means is if you give her an honest answer, let's say, let's say, for example, you know, I'm too smart for this. I've never answered. I, I always say, I love your hair long and short. No, no, seriously, like what, what do you really think, Drew? So let's say I one time maybe said like, you know, I would say I really, I probably like your hair long more. There's two ways that you can hear that. What's the first good way you can hear that? Oh, Drew likes my long hair. Now, what's the other way that you can hear that? Yes. He hates my short hair. Ugh! <laughs> uh, uh, when I cut my hair short, Drew's like ugh. Okay, you see what I mean? Now, another. You know, I thought of some other jokes that you could have used, like. If someone gets up and says, honey, you know, can I get you a Diet Coke? Diet Coke? Do you think I need a Diet Coke? You know, it's like, no, I was just trying to be hospitable and get you a, get you a drink. Okay, so I'm going to use this illustration a little bit, and this is something we have to be careful with with Romans 9. Paul is trying to say something really complimentary and good about God, but it's easy for us to, when he says that thing, to go, wait, are you saying you don't like my short hair? Using the hair analogy. Let's be people that as we read Romans 9, every time you or I find ourselves going... That thing Paul just said sounds really bad and mean. Don't lose sight. of Yeah, let's wrestle with those things, sure. But don't lose, don't get so focused on that that you lose the point of Paul saying, I love your beautiful long hair. Okay, you you following with me? All right. Before we get started in Romans 9, though, I would like to recap Romans 1 through 8 as succinctly and faithfully as possible. And then we'll read from Romans 9. Romans chapter 1 through 8, Paul wrote this letter to a group of people living in Rome to accomplish a few things. He wanted to talk to a community that was divided by Jew and Gentile, which is a theme in most of his letters, and he wanted them to become unified once again. These tense circumstances motivated Paul to write out his own fullest explanation of the gospel that we have, his swan song of the gospel. And the reason he didn't wasn't because he was like, I really want to write my theology of the gospel. It's because he believed that if they really grasped the gospel, these Jews and these Gentile Christians, if they really grasped the gospel, it would unify them. It would unify the church They would see that the gospel, as he says in Romans 1, is the power of God for salvation, to bring life to people. And that it reveals the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so he starts to talk about how he says, all nations are trapped in sin. Not just Gentiles. Gentiles and Israelites have been trapped in lives of sin. And the good news is that because Jesus came to be what we are, We have the opportunity to become what he is. Christ came to be what we are so that we can be what he is. And God declares us righteous because of Christ's faithfulness. And with that comes, with that righteousness, comes a few things. It comes a new standing before God and a new inclusion in God's people and a new life. The new inclusion part is a big deal to the Gentiles because the Jews have been saying for a while, well, you're not really in the family unless you're Jewish. So you get a new standing, a right standing with God, a new inclusion in God's people, and a new life. And the Israelites, they had always believed that that part of being God's covenant family and receiving the covenant promises depended on your lineage from the line of Abraham. But Paul shows through Abraham and through David, that participation in God's family is based on your faith and Christ's faithfulness, not on your lineage. Now that Jesus is the head of this new family, this new family of faith, they must die to their old life through the waters of baptism and not continue their old life of sin, but be liberated into this new life to love God and love people. So some of the people are wondering, okay, if Christ is the one that makes all this happen, why did he even give us the law? What was the point of the law if, if the law is not what makes us righteous? And Paul says, no, 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 the point of the law, it was good God, to show God's good, pleasing will, but it was never going to be the thing that makes you righteous. The solution to making you righteous is that through Christ you have received a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is going to transform and renew your hearts to follow God. And the renewing of your hearts is the key. That's what the law was always about. It's just we made it about something else. We didn't make it about, or the Israelites made it about something else. And so for any person that's wondering or has any question or doubt, you know, have I done enough? Have I followed faithfully enough? Do I have enough faith? Do I have, Paul wants to reiterate at the end of Romans 8, that the good news is, is that God is the one that is being faithful. The key to our salvation is all about Christ's faithfulness to his promises and that there is nothing that will separate us from Christ's faithfulness to redeem and renew us. Okay, That's Romans 1 through 8 in a little snapshot. Now we're going to read Romans 9 and we're going to have three takeaway points. But I have chosen, because, like I said, Romans 9, in my opinion, is a bear of a chapter. I have chosen for us to read from Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation, because I think it's going to be the most helpful way for you not to, one, get lost, and, not, and two, not to get caught up in the, Paul doesn't like my short hair, uh, but to focus on Paul. Uh, the, thing, the, the good points he's trying to make. Okay, Y'all are going to have to really remember the hair analogy because if you don't, you're going to be like, what on earth? Um, so, Romans 9, starting in verse 1. He just finished this big triumphant, nothing can separate you. Don't forget, it's not like two separate letters. He's still in the midst of this. Paul goes, but at the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times a huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain deep within me. And I'm never free of it. This is not just some, oh man, I'm kind of bummed. He is carrying an enormous pain and sorrow. He says, I'm not exaggerating. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. It's the Israelites. If there were any way I could be cursed by the Messiah so that they could be blessed by him, I'd do it in a minute. That's pretty strong language. He's saying, it is killing me how many of my Jewish brothers and sisters have not recognized that Jesus is the Messiah? And if God made a deal with me that I could lose my salvation so that all of my Jewish brothers and sisters could find salvation, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's a pretty strong, that's pretty strong language right there. I think parents, you would understand. Many of you parents have been in situations where you've seen your children go through maybe, let's say, some medical problems, and you would say, I would take their spot right now, if I could, if God would make that deal with me. And Paul is saying that, but about the Israelites and their salvation. He says, they are my family. I grew up with them. They had everything going for them. Family, glory, covenants, revelation, worship, promises. And that's not even to mention, to say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over everything always. Oh yes. Amen. So he's saying, it's even more painful because they had it all going for them. They had God's promises, they had the lineage, they had the covenants, they had all this, and yet they still weren't even able to recognize the Messiah. So, the question that the readers, because remember, this audience is Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, this is the question that the Israelite people are asking. So if you're telling me some of the Israelites haven't gotten on the same page with Jesus, Does that mean that God is not being faithful to his promises to redeem Israel? Because God's always been making promises. You are my people. I am going to be faithful to you. So here's where Paul answers that question. Don't suppose for a moment, though, that God's word has malfunctioned in some way or another. It's not God's fault that or his promises aren't being dropped because some Israelites aren't getting the picture. The problem goes back a long way. From the outset, not all Israelites of the flesh were Israelites of the Spirit. It wasn't Abraham's sperm that gave identity here, but God's promise. Remember how it was put. Your family will be defined by Isaac. That means that the Israelite identity was never racially determined by sexual transmission, but it was God determined by his promise. Remember that promise? When I come back next year, at this time, Sarah will have a son. So he's saying, remember, Abraham had two children. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. And Ishmael is just as much part of his lineage, and yet Ishmael did not receive the promise. That's what the point he's making. Even from the get-go, God has been choosing that he is going to work his promise through, not, he said, you are my chosen people, but even within the chosen family, he's still choosing Isaac. And then he says, I'm going to make the step even further, because you may be thinking, well, the reason he didn't do Ishmael is because that's Hagar's son, you know, not Sarah, right? Well... He's going to say, well, that's not even necessarily the case. And that's not the only time. To Rebecca, also a promise was made that took priority over genetics. When she became pregnant by our one-of-a-kind ancestor, Isaac, and her babies were still innocent in the womb, incapable of good or bad, she received a special assurance from God. What God did in this case made it perfectly plain that his purpose uh, is not a hit-or-miss thing dependent on what we do or don't do. He's saying... These two babies didn't have any say over who I chose. So it's not that one of them earned it. It's God's promise. It's, uh, let me find it back. Uh, Dependent on what they do or don't do. But a sure thing determined by God's decision flowing steadily from his initiative. God told Rebekah, the firstborn of your twins will take second place. Later that was turned into this stark epigram, I loved Jacob and hated Esau. This is one of those places where it's like, don't get too caught up in that phrase. Yes, it's painful. Yes, I never like a a phrase in the Bible where God says, I loved one person and hated another person. That really runs contrary. But we've got to remember, as it says, and we can talk about it on Wednesday night, that he's saying this is a, a phrase that came out of this, that, as he calls it, a stark epigram. But he's constantly, this is a great example right here, don't get caught up in the short hair right here. But focus on the good stuff Paul is trying to say. The good stuff Paul is trying to say has much more to do with the lines, God is the one that is initiating. So he's gonna keep reading. He says, Is that the grounds for complaining that God is unfair? He's you're thinking you're sitting there thinking, well, God must be unfair because he just picked one in the womb and not the other. And I can I can understand that that seems really unfair. I mean, Paul tells me, not so fast, Drew. God told Moses, I'm in charge of mercy. I'm in charge of compassion. Compassion doesn't originate in our bleeding hearts or moral sweat, but in God's mercy. Paul is once again coming back to this thing he's always been reiterating in Romans. God is the one that is determining your salvation. God is the one that gets all the credit for faithfulness. Not what these Jewish Christians have been doing, which is saying, well, my works are the thing of why I get credit for my faithfulness. It's like, Jesus' faithfulness is your source of, your, of God's mercy and compassion. The same point was made when God said to Pharaoh, I picked you as a bit player in this drama of my salvation power. You are a player in this scheme that I've always been about of trying to bring my salvation power. All we're saying is that God has the first word in initiating the action in which we play our part for better or worse. This is a great kind of summary line where he's going, listen, before you get caught up in everything I'm saying, this is what I'm trying to say. God has the first word, initiating the action in which we play our part for better or worse. So if any of this language sounds like it does to me, where it's like, well, I guess I just don't have any, anything to do with my salvation. Here's a good reminder of a line where he says, The key is, God has everything to do with your salvation and initiating it. And the action that we play our part in, for better or worse. Are we going to object? So how can God blame us for anything, since he's in charge of everything? If the big decisions are already made, what say do we have in it? It's a very fair question. And Paul does a little Job response. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you for one moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, why did you shape me like this? Isn't it obvious that a potter has a perfect right to shape one lump of clay into a vase for holding flowers and another into a pot for cooking beans? If God needs one style of pottery especially designed to show his angry displeasure and another style carefully crafted to show his glorious goodness, isn't that all right? Either or both happens to Jews. But it also happens to other people. Hosea put it well. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they yell out, you're nobody, they're calling you God's loving children. It seems like this kind of like Paul's shift gears there. But we always have to remember, even when Paul does this, where we're just like, I don't see how you got there, Paul. The place where he's still arriving is a line in which he's saying, our Savior, Jesus, looks at people who everyone else calls unloved, everyone else calls nobodies, and says, you are beloved, you are God's loving children. Focus on that. Isaiah maintained this same emphasis. So so he just quoted from Hosea. Now Paul's going to quote from Isaiah. And he maintained the same emphasis. If each grain of sand on the seashore were numbered, and the sum labeled chosen of God... These are the chosen of God. they be numbers still, not names. And salvation comes by personal selection. God doesn't count us. He calls us by name. Arithmetic is not his focus. That's pretty clever wording. He's saying God is not in the business of going, y'all are saved, as much as he's in the business of going, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Just like Jesus in John says, I know my sheep, all of them, And I call them by name. They're not just that's number that's 43B over there, you know? That's that's 82. But we have names. Remember that's that's a good rule you learn here in Clifton? If you're gonna raise cows, what do you not do with the cows? You don't give them names, right? Because you're gonna eat them. You know? (laughs) You don't give the pets you give the pets names because they're gonna stick around. You don't give and the phrase that I think Paul is trying to make is God doesn't just give us all a bunch of numbers because we're just God gives us names because he's interested in saving you and me and people, individuals with individual stories. Isaiah had looked ahead and spoken the truth. If our powerful God has not provided us a legacy of living children, people that he's personally called by name, we would have ended up like ghost towns like Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to pause here for a second before I finish the rest of the chapter. The things that I want us to focus on, there are two things I want you to really focus on. First, Paul is trying to reiterate over and over, it looks to you Israelite Christians that God has not been faithful to his promises because not all the Israelites know Jesus. And Paul is trying to say that is not the case. God is faithful to his promises. Don't think for a second that he's not because of this situation. Don't, uh, don't see what's going on and think, well, this must be that God didn't deliver on his promise. Uh, Another line that I would like, if you're a note taker, that I think is crucial from this first section, you can see it in a number of ways, a number of places where he talks about, I'm the one that initiates, where he's the one that says, to sum this up, you know, I'm the one that, uh, or God is the one who is at work at the, in making this happen. But the praise that I, I liked, that stuck out to me the most, and I enjoyed the most, is whenever he says, God told Moses, I'm in charge of mercy, I'm in charge of compassion. This idea of, for me, as much as I get frustrated with all the language of it sounding like God is choosing to allow some people into heaven and other people not into heaven, when I focus on this line, it doesn't sound like that. When I focus on this line, it sounds like, who else would I want to be in charge of mercy and compassion? There's a great, uh, a friend of mine and I were talking about this chapter and he made me think of a good analogy from the Bible, where there's the famous story with Esther and her cousin, uncle, cousin, Mordecai, cousin, her cousin Mordecai comes to her and says, Esther, you've got to do something. God has put you in this situation for you to be able to make a big difference in our family, to save Israelites, and she chooses to say, okay, I'll, I'll do that, and what we discussed is God is the one that is initiating that situation. And we believe, and I, you might disagree with me, I believe that if Esther had said no thanks, God would still have found a way to save the people of Israel. He would have gone and done what he needed to. And it made me think of that, there's that great line where it says, if you won't praise me, then the rocks will praise me. The rocks will cry out. God is the one that's in charge of mercy and compassion. Now he invites the people of Israel, he invites this certain family of not just Abraham, but even isaac and not just jacob and esau but even jacob and then on down to the messiah he invites this family but that doesn't mean that he's excluding others it's this is the one that i picked and guess what if they had said no like these people of israel have said no i'm still going to be about compassion and mercy i'm still going to find a way for my salvation power to be worked out which leads to this final part of romans 9 where well, you can tell he's kind of saying, so here's where we get with this Gentile and Jewish situation here. He says, how can we sum this up? I think Paul is being not just rhetorical, but literal. He's like, I don't really know how I'm going gonna... <laughs> to sum this up, but I'm going to try. All those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. He's talking about the Gentiles. All those people that you Jewish people thought, oh, those pagans living their pagan lives, doing all these terrible things, they don't seem interested at all. And yet, the God of compassion and mercy found a way where they actually seemed to embrace his Messiah. Okay? Then he talks to Israel. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects, that's Eugene Peterson's way of saying works, they were so caught up in their works that they didn't notice God right in front of them. Like a huge rock in the middle of the road. So they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah again, gives us the metaphor for pulling this together. Careful, I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone you can't walk around. Everybody who's on the road to salvation, you can't avoid this rock that I've put. But the stone is me. You're looking for me. You'll find me on the way, not in the way. So the question that Paul, in my opinion, the, the place he lands with this, which is, for me, I, I, I find it so enjoyable because... If you can't tell, my big rub throughout the whole chapter is this is as hard a language as it gets in Scripture of, of some of the arguments we have about whether or not you have any say in your salvation or whether God's just picked certain people that he's going to save. Because of all, if I were arguing for full predestination, you have no say, Romans 9 is the first place I'd turn to. And yet, the end of Romans 9 is so clearly the question of will you be someone who embraces God or will you be someone who embraces your works and your God projects? I'm going to read that part again and I want you to sit on this and tell me this doesn't sound like, well, if you grew up like me, the way I grew up Church of Christ, you can't tell me that this part about the Israelites doesn't sound just like us and a whole lot of Christians. Let's read this again. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, so interested in reading every little interpretation and getting every little answer of the text just right, missed it. How could they miss it? We're reading this stuff all the time. Is it because we didn't have the right translation? Were we in the wrong? Because instead of trusting God, we took over. We were absorbed in what we were doing. We were so absorbed in our God projects that we didn't notice God right in front of us like a huge rock in the middle of the road. I would say the good news is is that this passage for Romans which was written to why did the Gentiles get it? Not because of all their works. Not because of how much they studied God. Not because of how they knew all the answers and went to Wednesday night church and took communion on Sunday night church also. That wasn't the answer. It's because they embraced Jesus. And we have the opportunity and the invitation here from Paul to say, actually, you do play a part in whether or not faithfulness and compassion and mercy will be a part of your lives. And here's the irony. It is not based on how good you do something, but it's based on how much you let go and let God do everything. You see my irony here? It's like I'm annoyed with Romans 9 because it's like you have no say. It's all predestination. That's what it feels like. That's the focusing on the short hair. But when I focus on this other part, the long hair, it's like, guess what? God is in charge of compassion. God is in charge of mercy, in charge of giving you a new life. And what do we do in response to that? Is to embrace God and say, I'm going to let you, I'm going to just come to you. I'm not going to get so caught up in what I'm doing. I'm not going to get so caught up in how good I am at being a Christian. I'm going to get caught up in you and finding you along the road. And that's the invitation that we have for all of us. As much as that sounds like doing nothing, it is doing everything. Is just saying to God, I want you to take over. So I want to encourage you, as we think about this and reflect on this, my challenge for you this week is to stop and think about ways that we can enjoy the good news that we have a Savior that is faithful to his promises, a Savior who is constantly saying, I'm the one that's initiating compassion and mercy and saving, and that our only job in response to that is not to get better at doing church, but our response to that is to say, I just want you, Jesus. I want to pursue you. I want more of you. If any of you would like to know more about what it means to just embrace Jesus, I'd encourage you to come while we're going to stand. If any of you would like to, to on that journey to Mount Zion, to salvation, to know what it means to run into the rock and instead of running around it, but to, to embrace it, I'd encourage you to come as we stand and sing. Elders will be at the doors uh, if you have any prayer requests.